Good morning. If you're able, please stand to show reverence to the Lord as we join in hearing his word. Our Old Testament reading this morning is Isaiah 54, 4 to 8. Fear not, you will not be ashamed. Do not confound it, for you will, you will not be disgraced. For, we, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth is his call. For the Lord has called you a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says the, your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with a great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Our New Testament reading is uh, James 4, 6 to 10. But he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will free from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinner, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself. Therefore, before God, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Join me in praying for the message this morning. Our Father and our God, we are grateful to you for your word. We're grateful to you for your voice given to us through your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would enable us as your people, Lord, to hear your word. Lord, may we hear it together. And Lord, may you be glorified. And we ask too, Father, that those who don't know you, that they too may hear your voice and know the great love that you have for them in Jesus Christ. Enable them, Lord, to place their faith in you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. This morning, uh, the title of our sermon is, But He Gives More Grace, and it's taken from the text. But I have a riddle for you uh, first. And here's the, here's the riddle. What is the one thing of which no one is free and everyone loathes when they see it in someone else, and of which hardly anyone ever imagines that they are guilty themselves. <laughs> you see, there's those Sunday school answers. 
Sin just covers it all, yes. But specifically, pride. Pride. Yeah, and see, dur- during the, the season of Lent, as we, with Paul Tripp's aid, make our journey to the cross, we seek to devote ourselves to exposing the deep crevices of our hearts to the light of God's grace offered to us through Jesus Christ. And Lent reminds us that whatever it is we think we are sacrificing in our service to the Lord or his people, it's not to be compared to the sacrifice of Christ. During Lent, we are learning to love the giver more than the gifts. We've seen, we're seeing the greatness of God's grace more than our efforts at being a good Christian. Because it's quite possible in the attempt to be a better person, a good Christian, that we miss the grace of God. We can be moral and merciless. We can be charitable but at the same time, unloving. And how? Because we can't, we can be be caught up in the pride of being religious. And every Christian, every Christian is tempted with being religiously proud. And religious pride is, is so insidious. It shows up when you click your tongue when you hear about the sins of other people, but you excuse your own. It rears its head when you feel overlooked. It's lurking when you withhold your participation in in fellowship and, and service, feigning humility and integrity, but you're really full of self pity. A la Ananias and Sapphira, if you remember their story. But God, in calling us to the humility that only grace produces, the humility that's in our text, a humility that rides the waves of of grace all the way to the heights. But how do we get away? How do we get away from the pride of being religious? And what, what must happen to have the humility that grace produces? How can we get it? especially in a culture that encourages pride in in everything. In in the world, pride increases suffering. But, the scripture tells us, he gives more grace. And the scripture reading today is showing us the way to being delightedly humble. It's in knowing that he, God, gives more grace because of a covenantal faithfulness that inspires a cleansing focus that has a crowning future. Now, this is in the, all of this is in the text that, that we just read from James chapter 4. Let's think about this. Covenantal faithfulness. He gives more grace, but it begins with covenantal faithfulness. The text says, you adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? 
but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, over and over again, we see in the pages of the Bible this picture of God being the spouse of his people. You might ask, where is that in the text? Well, the fact that James refers to them as adulterous brings up the image of marital infidelity. And now he's talking about spiritual adultery for sure, but the idea is that James, much like the prophets of the Old Testament, is calling Christians to be faithful to God. A faithfulness that is like that of a wife to her spouse. And James is saying, you can't be torn between two lovers feeling like a fool. See, you laugh because you know that old song. <laughs> yeah, but you can't, so you can't be lovers of the world and lover, a lover of God. The world and, and God don't mix. And when the Bible uses the term the world, the world is its cosmos. It's the system. It's the system that, that leaves God out. And the world system is by design enticing to our sinful natures. The system of the world feels right. It's as if the soil, it's as if the, the, the roots of, your, of our sin finds its nourishment in the soil of the world. And it's just, it's just, it's just, it just feels right. It isn't just sinful acts, because sinful acts are, are just the fruit. The root of our sinful fruit is what resonates with the world. It sounds right to say, I believe in God in my own way. But that's the world system talking. It sounds right to say, if it doesn't hurt anyone, what's wrong with it? Why shouldn't I, I do it? But that's the world talking. It sounds right to say, I can choose whatever I want to be. And no one can judge me on this. But that's the world system talking. It sounds right to say, I don't need to believe in God. I believe in myself. But that's the world system talking. See, the world system and God don't mix. The world encourages pride, and, and then it exploits it, and it, le it, it, it leaves you broken and humiliated. Whoever has thought those things, these, these things, and you've heard these statements before. I've heard them be before, and, and I've heard them over the years from a number of different people. But in every one of them, if they were to be honest with themselves, they would say they're not happy. Living, living that philosophy, living that ideology, or that, or that, or those, or those that 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 system of belief. There is no happiness in that. It leaves you broken and humiliated. C.S. Lewis, writing about pride, wrote this. He said, "Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began." Amen. Yeah, it is pride. Pride is the problem. But God, the text tells us, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Sounds like more marriage talk, doesn't it? it lover, lovers in, in an exclusive relationship get jealous, right? 
No, I mean, that, that's, that's, and, 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 and yeah, James wants us to think deeply about a theme that runs through Scripture and the implications of it. And the theme is that God is a jealous God who will have no other gods before him. Now, the ESV in verse 5, you know, it has these quotation marks uh, uh, there that makes it appear as if James is quoting some Old Testament verse, but you can search the Old Testament and you won't find that verse because he's not quoting a verse. Other translations don't have the quotation marks, and it's more likely that James is employing a teaching method that, that focuses on a scriptural theme, but also... Here's another, another issue with this text is that, is he talking about the spirit of man or is he talking about the spirit of God? And now, so as, as you read in, in, in the ESV, it looks like he's talking about the spirit of man. But in other translations, it's, it's the Holy Spirit. It seems like he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And you can be, you'll be in good company seeing it either way. And I, I think that it's the Holy Spirit. And it's saying that the Holy Spirit that Christ has placed in us longs for us to love only God. See, that's why, that's why James says there's grief to grieve and to mourn over the sin of being seduced by the world. The Spirit is pursuing you and I even when we are seeking to have our needs met by some other love. See, the text is telling us that God loves his people jealously, not sinfully, but passionately. He pursues us to love him. But it isn't so that he's fulfilled because he needs nothing from us. God doesn't need any, he doesn't need anything from us. <laughs> you, know, you know, we can't add anything to God. You realize that? You can't, you can't add anything to God. He's God, as you say, all by himself. <laughs> you know, you can't add anything to him, but that he, that he pursues us in this way, it's for our good. God passionately pursues us to love him because loving the world will kill you. His love is life-giving. One writer said it this way, to realize that the awesomely holy God who transcends the universe and is wholly other and self-contained is at the same time personally and passionately and lovingly jealous for our affection, this realization ought to stop any of our affairs with the world and cause us to prostrate our souls adoringly before him. How we are loved and how we ought to love. Amen. Yes. Yes. He gives more grace is evident in the realization that the covenantal faithfulness is all from God and not from us. We are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Yes, this covenant, this covenantal, this covenanted faithfulness 
inspires a cleansing focus. James, look at verse 7 and 8 of James 4. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Yes, he gives more grace because of a covenanted faithfulness that showcases God's passionate pursuit of us to love him exclusively inspires a cleansing focus. And do you see the focus in the text? It's submitting to God and drawing near to God. Submit yourselves, the text says, to God. It means to arrange yourself to be put under the control of God. Arrange yourself to be put under the control of God. And now right away, when you, see, when, you, when you see that, you know, pride bristles. And the idea of subjection or someone controlling you, I mean, that, 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 just, that, just, makes, that just makes the hair rise on your, on your back. What? And what's the issue with the idea of being under control of some of, of someone see you think that the person doesn't have your best interest at heart you think that if you submit more pain will be inflicted upon you than you can bear you think that the control and, and submission is is going to be your end and, and you will you'll suffer in the relationship and sometimes in human relationships that is what happens but when you know that the person who is, is calling for the control has sacrificed themselves for you and is bearing, is bearing more pain than they are inflicting, you have no problem giving them control. They're worthy, they're worthy of it. And really, there's only, there only one person worthy of your complete surrender. It's Jesus Christ. See, there's the Sunday school answer. You could have said Jesus. Yeah, because it is, it's, only, it's only Jesus Christ. And in Lent, in this season, it's, it's a sharpening of our focus away from yourself and towards God. Not a focus on what you're giving up, but what God has through Christ, through Christ's sacrifice given to you. Paul Tripp writes this. He says, Lent is about willing self-sacrifice as you pursue the one who made the ultimate sacrifice for you. It's not about what you are doing or are committing yourself to do for God, but about what he has done and is now doing for you. Think of it this way. Focus on being clean because you've been cleansed. God has in Christ provided you with cleansing that can't be paralleled and nothing can be added to it. It can only be realized. In Isaiah 54, that text we read earlier, you, know, that you see a picture, the, the cleansing. It's the cleansing that awakens us to pursue being clean. And hear it, hear it in Isaiah 54, verse 4. Fear not. You will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Do you see the cleansing? Cleansed from fear. Cleansed from shame. Cleansed from confusion. Cleansed from disgrace. Cleansed from scorning. 
And I don't know that we get the full weight of this unless we understand uh, what, what it meant to be barren in, 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 the, the, in Israel's culture. Because in, in Israel's time, being barren and, and being a widow made you the object of scorn. You perhaps remember the story of Ruth and Naomi. You probably, perhaps you, you remember how, how Rachel was treated because she was barren. How Elizabeth John the Baptist's mother, how she was treated because she was barren. The barrenness, barrenness and, and widowhood meant you had nothing. And here the scripture is saying that you have, you, you have no husband, you have no son, no one to provide for you. You see, widow in the Old Testament didn't just mean that you lost your spouse. That's not what it meant. The word meant you were destitute. You had nothing. And that's what, the, that's what a husband did. That's what a son would do. The husband would provide. The son would provide. And without them, you had nothing, which is why the scripture condemns so much the, the, the misuse and the abuse of a widow. Because you're, you're abusing somebody who has absolutely nothing, and God is their defender. So here it is. The text is saying to, to, the, to us that just as a widow... Just as, 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 as someone who is without children to provide for them, God has taken up that position. I am your husband, the scripture says. I am your, I, your maker. See, that's the cleansing. He, you know, the shame, he's taken that away. The, the, he's taken away the, the confusion. He's taken away the disgrace. You know, all of those things are now gone because of what God has done all of this see all of that all the fear the shame the, the being confounded all of those are the result of sin and, and pride but he gives more grace and the Lord is that redeemer he's their redeemer he comes to cleanse his people from these now go out and realize it but don't be ashamed don't fear because of what Christ has done. See, Jesus has done this for you. See, he's the servant of Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, that, as, as it talks about the servant. He, that's Jesus, who he knew what it meant to be shamed on the cross. He knew, he knew what, it, what it is to be disgraced since he died the death of a criminal he knows what it's like to be publicly scorned and mocked since they said about him on the cross, he's the son of God, let him come down. He saved others, can he save himself? He knows what it's like to be scorned and because he was scorned, ah, you and I are saved from scorning and from fear and from shame and from disgrace. And that he rose from the dead he causes the barren woman to sing, Isaiah 54. Ah, see, Jesus rises from the dead, and yes, yes, the barren woman bursts into song. It's just spontaneous. See, if you don't like singing, you're really going to fill out a place in heaven. Because it just happened, you know, yeah, yeah. So, so you just burst into singing because of what it is that 
God has done. The maker is your husband who loves you even though you were abandoned, even though you were destitute like a widow woman. Now, real, yeah, see, this is why you burst into singing because you realize it. You realize it. Yeah, my cupboard may be bare, but I have God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I have his people who understand that, and they too are my supply, my sustenance. You say, how, does it, how do you realize it? Well, you, it's by obeying the instruction. Here in the text, in James, back to James 4, here in the text it tells us, obey, you, the way to resist the devil is to submit to the Lord. Stand up to the devil is what James is saying, but the way you stand up to the devil is by humbling yourself, submitting to the Lord. The way to cleanse your hands and, and to purify your heart and to focus your, your minds so that it's stable and not double-minded is by drawing near to God and he draws near to you. In other words, recognize, recognize, you see, recognize the intensity of the relationship that you have with God. You know, you know sometimes, you know, relationships struggle, whether it's with a roommate or a brother or a sister or, or, or a husband and a wife, sometimes you struggle because of relationship intensity. But here in this case, the intensity of the relationship that you have with God is not a, is not a point of struggle, but it's one to surrender and to embrace with everything that you've got. Since humbling yourself, you receive a crowning future. Look at verses 9 and 10 of, of James 4. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The verse is teaching us to cast ourselves down in order to be crowned. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Turn your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom are ways to humble yourself and to turn from the world to God. If you humble yourself, the scripture says, God will exalt you. And that word exalt means to, to raise to the, the very summit of opulence and prosperity. To, rise, to raise to dignity and honor and happiness. Sounds like a crowning, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And we are, we are inheriting a kingdom. Amen. We are, we are ruling and reigning with Christ. Isn't that true? Yes. Now, that doesn't mean you walk around and call yourself queen or king or, or prince or, or anything like that, because that's the exact opposite of humility. No, no, no. But, you, but it is, it's, 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 this is receiving that, that grace that seeks to lift because that's what grace does. Grace seeks to lift. Grace goes from the greater to the lesser. Grace always has a, a downward flow that causes the recipient to, it, it carries the recipient upwards. So we cast ourselves down in order to be crowned. And this is how, this is how grace works in the kingdom of God for the people of God. That is, that is the grace that saves you. It teaches you. It enables you and preserves you. He gives more grace. The text literally says he gives greater grace. Greater grace. 
over and over, more and more. It's flowing. It's lavish. Now, here's the question. Do you want greater grace? Do you want, do you want to crush your pride? You see, God has, has covenanted his faithful love to us. The assurance of such love is seen in Jesus Christ. The love, this love calls us to a cleansing focus, not to get cleaner, but because he has brought cleansing into your life with his love. With his love, Christ has made you clean. Hallelujah. Yeah, you see, whoa, there, 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 there is reason to rejoice. And it's the realization of this cleansing. It happens as we humble ourselves. We cast ourselves down in order to be crowned, understanding that whatever we think we are sacrificing here, it's not to be compared with Jesus' sacrifice, which has secured for us a future crowning. And that he gives more grace. That crushes religious pride. It crushes religious pride. Ira Stanfield, he wrote this song, Years ago. So it's, it's an ancient song. It was written like in 1953. <laughs> so, yeah, but the song, the song demonstrates how coming back to the cross again and again, we find that God gives greater grace to transform us from prideful to delightedly humble. Stanfield writes, I traveled down a lonely road and no one seemed to care. The burden on my weary back had bowed me to despair. I oft complained to Jesus how folks were treating me. And then I heard him say so tenderly. My feet were also weary upon the Calvary road. The cross became so heavy I fell beneath the load. Be faithful, weary pilgrim, the morning I can see. Just lift your cross and follow close to me. I work so hard for Jesus, I often boast and say, I've sacrificed a lot of things to walk the narrow way. I gave up fame and fortune. I'm worth a lot to thee. And then I hear him gently say to me, I left the throne of glory and counted it but loss. My hands were nailed in anger upon a cruel cross. But now we'll make the journey with your hand safe in mine. So lift your cross and follow close to me. Oh Jesus, if I die upon a foreign field someday, would be no more than love demands, no less could I repay. No greater love hath mortal man than for a friend to die. These are the words he gently spoke to me. If just a cup of water I place within your hands, then just a cup of water is all that I demand. But if by death to living 
they can my glory see. I'll lift my cross and follow close to thee. You see, there isn't a sacrifice that you and I can make that will equal the sacrifice of Christ. And if God, who gives more grace, is at work on our behalf in such a way, then shouldn't this make us delightedly humble? Grace should make us glad. Grace replaces grumpiness. It replaces it with gladness. One commentator exhorted this way, to, to test, the test of a church's faith is not only the, the wording in its creed, but also the gladness in its worship. The gospel de demands a carefree spirit. If we aren't going to hell anymore, if we stand to inherit every blessing Almighty God can think of, if nothing can stand in the way of our restored humanness because it's all ours through the merit of Christ, the friend of sinners, if that can't make us smile, what can? Let's pray. Father, indeed, Lord, we are in need of your grace. Lord, you know us, you know our brokenness, you know our weakness, and yet, Lord, you have lavished your grace upon us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he, Lord, has taken our place made this trade for us. Oh God, enable us by your spirit in these days, in these times, in this world, Lord, enable us to humble ourselves toward you and toward one another that the world might continue to see and glorify your name because you, oh Lord, are worthy of it. That's in Christ's name we pray, amen.